0: John chapter 14. Just do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms, if it were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let's uh, let's pray together this morning, shall we? And then we'll look into God's word. Lord, uh, thank you for uh, the opportunity we have to come together and to worship you. Uh, Lord, thank you that we have uh, the scriptures that we can read and study and Lord, we take that for granted, but there are many places today that that don't have access to your word. We thank you for the privilege of that. And so, Lord, I pray that uh, we would now open up our hearts and minds to your spirit. And uh, may the spirit be our teacher today. May we leave here uh, encouraged as we worship you. We will thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We have been looking at uh, the Gospel of John. And so, uh, in the timeline of things, we're in John chapter 14, and we kind of jumped ahead the last two weeks because we looked at the uh, cries from the cross, Jesus' seven statements from the cross. Uh, we also looked at, the last week, of course, the resurrection of Jesus, and uh, now we're going to go back just a little bit in the timeline and uh, look at John chapter 14. If I had a goal for you this morning, or my goal this morning, and... Uh, that we want to accomplish this morning, um, would be this. Um, You'll know uh, Dave Ramsey, the financial guru. Um, his goal with people is to get them out of debt. And if you work through the, the Total Money Makeover program and, and you get out of debt, uh, if you've ever listened to him on his radio program, he has people uh, uh, respond to what they've been through, how much debt they've gotten out of, it, and then they yell, I'm debt free! And they celebrate uh, getting out of debt. Um, this morning, and we won't make you yell this at the end of the service, but my goal is that you will be anxiety free at the end of this message. And we know that we're living in times where uh, all the research says that, that stress and worry and anxiety in people's lives across all ages is at the highest level. And so this morning, I want to look at John chapter fourteen and uh, listen to some words of Jesus that will hopefully bring some comfort and encouragement to our hearts. Before we get to John thirteen, no, we're going to go or fourteen. We're going to go back to John thirteen, and that kind of sets the context for John fourteen. So you know what John thirteen is all about. It's the upper room uh, 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 Passover meal. Jesus is in Jerusalem, it's the day before the cross, and they're observing the Passover meal, and Jesus transfuses a, a new meaning into that, and he gives us the, the, the communion experience, this do in remembrance of me when he took that third cup of the Passover meal. Jesus also, in that great act of humility, washed the feet of the disciples, but then he begins to share some news with them and it's troubling news. It was a very traumatic night for the twelve disciples because Jesus announces that one of the twelve is going to betray him. And we know that was Judas Iscariot. And that shocked the disciples. They began to, to ask amongst one another when he said, one of you will betray me. And they're asking, you know, who is it? Is, is it, is it I? Then Jesus tells them, I'm leaving you, and where I'm going, you can't come with me. And Jesus, who had been their rock, their leader, their, their constant companion for three years, is saying, I'm leaving, and um, you, you can't join me. Then to top it off, Jesus tells Peter, um, before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. It, emotionally, for the disciples, it was like one gut punch after another, and so the disciples are reeling from this news. And Jesus then begins to give them some words of comfort, and that brings us to John chapter 14. So our message this morning is uh, biblical truths for troubled hearts. We could substitute the word troubled hearts. Uh, we could substitute the word for anxious hearts, for for worried hearts, for for stressed stress-filled lives. And so we want to look at two biblical truths and principles, and here's the first one that uh, is in your outline this morning before we get to the the solution. Trouble is part and parcel of life in a fallen world. Trouble is is part and parcel of life in a fallen world. Genesis chapter 3 changed everything. When when mankind uh, sinned and mankind fell, it changed everything, and now we are living under the curse, the curse of sin. Now someday that curse is going to be reversed. Revelation twenty two three says, talking about heaven, says there will be what? No more curse, and no more sin, no more suffering, no more sickness, no more dying. But until then, we. We live in a a fallen world and trouble is a part of our everyday existence. If you read scripture carefully, uh, that should be no surprise to us. Um, All through scripture, the biblical writers talk about the fact that the Christian life is not going to be easy. It doesn't preach the prosperity gospel that comes and says, come to Jesus and you'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Actually, the message could be the opposite come to Jesus, you might have more problems in this world um, so job chapter five verse seven job one who knows what trouble is man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward job fourteen one mortals born of women are full are of few days and full of trouble the words of Jesus in the upper room in John 16. In this world, you will have trouble. Peter writes in 1 Peter 4 to persecuted Christians who are under the the heavy hand of the emperor Nero. And he writes to them to encourage them. And he says, dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come to test you as though something strange was happening to you. Don't be surprised at difficulty. Don't be surprised at trouble because it is a part and parcel of life. And so we go through the psalms and we read various psalms and categories of psalms. And one of the categories of psalms are uh, psalms of lament. And and it's the, the, the writer of the psalms and he's, He's lamenting about the trouble that they're experiencing. In fact, there's a whole book of the Bible called Lamentations. I often joke with people when I tend to complain a little bit, and I say, well, I'm not complaining, I'm lamenting. You know, try to give it a biblical justification. But Psalms of Lament, Psalm 13, listen to David. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? And so as we read Scripture, we discover that what? Trouble is to be expected in our lives. It's part and parcel of being a part of the human race. Now, Peter tells us that trouble comes in all shapes and sizes. He writes about the manifold trials, the, the multi kinds of trials that, that we experience. They come in all sorts of categories. Uh, uh, financial stress, and certainly with what's going on in our country, and our economy, and COVID-19, and loss of jobs, millions and millions of people have experienced um the stress of loss of a job and, and financial stress in their life. I like the fellow who said, I have enough money to last me the rest of my life as long as I don't live past a week from Thursday. Um, you know, sometimes we experience financial stress, and, and that's a, that's a that's a trial, that's a that's a trouble in our life. Uh, certainly physical stress. Uh, Ecclesiastes twelve, when Solomon's writing the conclusion of the book, he says, Remember the creator of our youth of, of our, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Why? Before we get old, and life becomes what? Troublesome. And the body begins to break down. There are many kinds of areas of trouble, of uh, family stress. If you have some stress and situations in your family, and your extended family, welcome to the club. Because I discover if people are honest and transparent, the more I listen to them, and if they're open with me, and and I would say this is true of my extended family as well, you discover that there's issues, there's problems, there's stress, there's maybe some relationship difficulties that are going on. And so here's the, the first truth here, is that trouble is part and parcel of life in the fallen world. COVID-19 has just added to that, And so all of us experience trouble. all of us experience stress. all of us experience anxiety in our lives. And some of you might say, "Well, certainly, you know certainly uh, pastors, pastors don't experience that, and uh, I'll talk to you after the service. <laughs> got the same stuff going on that all of you do. You have some sleepless nights occasionally. Wake up and problems come, and um, uh, I experience that often. And so the message this morning is primarily for me, (laughs) and I hope you get some benefit out of it as well. So let's look at some solutions. So um, the the good news is, and this is where we'll spend the majority of our time, that uh, God has given us resources for life in a fallen world. So, what are we to do when when trouble comes and here in John chapter 14 uh, jesus gives us three resources to turn to to encourage us to give us hope and i've added a fourth from uh, another familiar per- passage in the bible so let's let's look at the first one here's the first resource it's a person john 141. What did Jesus say to the disciples, "Do not let your hearts be troubled. Uh, the word there means uh, agitated. Don't be stressed out. Don't don't worry. You believe in God, believe also in me. And so the first the first resource that God offers us for times of trouble is the person of Jesus Himself, the one who's called the Prince of Peace, he says. You believe in God? That's an indicative statement, and, and that's a, a declarative statement. Like today is April eleventh, twenty twenty-one. But then the next statement, "Believe in me," is, in, is imperative. It's a command. You believe in God? Believe also in me. In one sense, Jesus is claiming to be God, and he's offering himself as the a resource for the disciples. In their time of trouble. So God is a resource. Maybe you've seen this bumper sticker. No God N O G O D um No Peace N O Peace. And then underneath it, no God K N O W K N O W peace. As we know God, we can experience the peace that He offers. And so Jesus says, Believe in God, believe also in me. It's interesting that the word believe occurs 90 times in the Gospel of John alone. And Jesus is asking us what? To trust Him. We do this all the time in our life, don't we? get on an airplane, and maybe we haven't done that lately because of uh, the world in which we live in, but you get on an airplane... And you uh take your seat and you buckle up your seatbelt, and then um, you are implicitly trusting a pilot and their training and their ability to, to take that plane and take off filled with uh tons of fuel and to get you safely to your destination. You go to a pharmacy and you you give them a piece of paper that your doctor has scribbled some things on and his signature, and they give you some. Uh, goes to the back and he gets some things and puts some things together and he gives you some pills and you take them. That's implicit trust. Uh You do, you don't know exactly what that knows. Maybe it's on the side of the the uh, the bottle. I don't know, but it, it, there's a there's a level of trust there. We do this all the time, and, and God is saying, and Jesus is saying, don't let your heart be troubled. I want you to believe in me. Now, we live in a world where, uh, in our American culture, um, most people believe in God, but not all people. Uh, the, the statistics that I looked up this week, in uh, U.S. population uh, Four point five percent are ag- agnostic. It means they they believe that you don't can't really know that a god exists. And three percent of the population is atheist. So about seven to eight percent don't even believe that a god exists, or that God, if He does exist, that you can know Him in any way. The psalmist says, Psalm 14, 1, The fool has said in their heart, there is no God. Do you ever think about what life would be like if God didn't exist? Life would be very random. Life would be ultimately purposeless. Uh, We should be living a life of hedonism to just go out and enjoy pleasure, eat, drink, and be merry because if this world is all there is and tomorrow we're going to die, we might as well grab for all the gusto we can. There would be no absolute truth. Because there's no moral standard. Because God is ultimately the moral standard. The grave is the end. Life is meaningless. And that's what Solomon wrote about in the book of Ecclesiastes when he was trying to find meaning in life. Life under the sun is empty. It's meaningless. So the late Dr. Francis Schaeffer in 1972 wrote a book entitled He is There and He is Not Silent. The description of of the book by um, one person, Schaeffer, encourages readers to have a deeper understanding of who they are, who God is, and how they know Him as they encounter an infinite personal God who is there and is not silent. He has revealed Himself. He's revealed Himself in the Word of God, He's revealed Himself in His person, His Son, Jesus. He's revealed Himself as we look around and create, see the beauty of creation that points to what? A creator and a designer. In chapter 2 of that book, The Moral Necessity, Schaefer writes, without God, morality dissipates into merely human opinion. Rather, the character of the infinite personal God is the basis of morality boy, isn't that where we are today as a country and as a nation? In our culture, relativism, tolerance. There's nobody nobody knows how do you define truth. Well, that might be true for you, but it's not true for me. And we become the the arbiter and the self decider of what truth is, which ultimately puts us in the place of God. Thank God that God has revealed Himself. God's given us resources, and the first one is a person, but uh, He's given us a second resource. That's a place to look forward to. A place to look forward to. Verse 2 of John chapter 14. Jesus begins to comfort the hearts of the troubled disciples with these words My father's house has many rooms. The translation I read growing up, and we sang about when I was a pastor's son growing up in Cleveland, Ohio, was in my Father's house are many, you know it, don't you, mansions. And they've written songs about it. I've got a mansion just over the hilltop. Well, the word translated mansions is really better translated rooms. It's the word mone. Jesus begins to talk about heaven. And the first thing he says about heaven is, uh, in my Father's house, there are many rooms. There's lots of rooms. Randy Alcorn, who's written a, about a 500-page book on heaven, has this to say about the new Jerusalem, which is really where we spend the rest of eternity. There's a new heaven and a new earth, and then you read in Revelation 21, out of the new heaven and the new earth comes down what? The new Jerusalem comes down. And here's how John describes the new Jerusalem The city's exact dimensions are measured by an angel and are reported to be 12,000 stadia, the equivalent of 1,400 miles in length, width, and height. This is Revelation 21. So the New Jerusalem is 1,200 miles wide, 1,200 miles long, and 1,200 miles high, like a cube. Randy Elkhorn says a metropolitan metropolis of this size in the middle of the United States would stretch from Canada to Mexico and from the Appalachian Mountains to the California border. We don't need to worry that heaven will be crowded. The ground level of the city will be merely nearly 2 million square miles. This is 40 times bigger than England, 15,000 times bigger than London, ten times as big as France or Germany, and far larger than India. But remember, that's just the ground level. Given the dimensions of a 1,400-mile cube, if the city consisted of different levels, and if each story were a generous 12 feet high, the city could have 600,000 stories high. If they were on different levels, billions of people could occupy the New Jerusalem with many square miles per person, He goes on to say, if these numbers are figurative, not literal, that is certainly possible. Surely they are meant to convey that the home of God's people will be extremely large and roomy. You'll have lots of room in the new Jerusalem. Jesus begins to comfort the hearts of the disciples by not only saying, uh, offering himself as a comfort as a person, but he begins to talk to them about heaven. And so... What we need to realize as we think about the words of Jesus is that earth is our temporary home, but heaven is our permanent home. We thing about it. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. Uh, all through the Bible we read uh, in reference to believers, they're strangers and pilgrims in this world. Philippians 3.20, Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. And so Jesus begins to talk to us and comfort our hearts by talking to us about our ultimate home. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. Dr. Joe Stoll Retiring president of Cornerstone University in Grand Rapids wrote a book entitled Eternity. Chapter 5 is entitled Preoccupied with Paradise, Hooking Our Hope on Heaven. Here's what he has to say about heaven. Eternity for many of us holds little relevance to our everyday affairs. We live as though it is theologically real but irrelevant. In fact, one of the reasons we fail to impact our world may be that for a long time, heaven has seemed unimportant to us personally and has nearly disappeared from our liturgy, sermons, hymns, prayers, thoughts, and dialogue. He goes on to write, Without heaven in clear view, our Christianity fails to have a heavenward compulsion pulling us closer to God, closer to eternity, closer to home. It tends to become instead self-serving entertainment or a therapeutic center. A heavenless church seeks to satisfy longings and needs here rather than serving and sacrificing with a view to satisfaction there. Without an eternal God as our compelling force heaven and heaven in clear view, self becomes the center of attention and increasingly the center of our universe. What Jesus is saying to his disciples and what the New Testament tells us, it keeps pushing us and and telling us to center our affections, Colossians 3.1, on what? Things above. That's hard to do, isn't it? We get so involved in in this world and the problems and the issues of this world, but our our real home is heaven. And I've discovered the older a Christian gets... The further along in the journey, the more and more our hearts begin to think about heaven. Our hearts begin to turn toward our ultimate home. I think it was the last book that Billy Graham, the late Billy Graham wrote, and it was entitled Almost Home. And Billy Graham arrived there a few years ago at the age of 99. You looking forward to heaven? Is it something that's just kind of a theoretical thing or, or is it a real concept that ultimately uh, we're here for uh, a short period of time? Life is a vapor, but our real home is a place called the New Jerusalem. No more sorrow, no more sadness, no more sickness, no more death, no more curse, no more night. Looking forward to heaven. Our two grandsons, Shane and Luke, had uh go to Clinton school system and their spring break was this last week and so uh Diane planned uh I tried to do a little special special something special with them each each day and uh otherwise about ten hours with a six year old and an eight year old gets to be a long day. You don't have something planned. So she took him to a movie and took him to a playground, but we did do one kind of big, big, uh, outing and I, I went along and, uh, uh, it was in Port Clinton, Ohio. And it's an African safari and we've, uh, it's a drive-thru and, uh, we've been there a couple other times. The boys seem to enjoy it. And, uh, you, you pay your fee and, uh, you drive in and then the, uh, animals come right up to your car. You can roll your window down and, and, uh, then they sell you these cups with way overpriced carrots and lettuce in it, and, uh, you know, and that runs out in ten minutes, and you end up spending a lot of money on feeding the animals, but that's, uh, that's okay. But, uh, so, uh, buffalo and deer and giraffes, they come right up to the car, they, they, they all stick their head in the car, and you can feed them out of this cup, and, uh, they enjoy it, but, um on the way there, uh, a little under a two-hour drive, <clears throat> six-year-old Luke, and if you've been a while since you've traveled with young children looking forward to something, you'll you'll remember this question. Are we almost there yet? 20 minutes later, are we almost there yet? He asked about five or six times, hey, Luke, we'll tell you when we're about 10 minutes away. His anticipation of getting there and enjoying that experience. Well... Jesus' words of encouragement to us are, I'm preparing a place for you, and it's a place called heaven. It's our ultimate home. The third resource uh, that God gives us for a troubled world is uh, a, a promise. He makes a promise in verse, verse 3 to the disciples who are experiencing his troubled hearts, let me pick it up in, in verse 2. If that were not so, I, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, here's the promise. I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. There's a lot of personal pronouns there. I'm coming back that you will be what? With me. It's the, it's, it's the promise of the return of Jesus. And we know that the timeline from reading the Gospels and the book of Acts that, uh, after the resurrection, Jesus uh, made six weeks of post-resurrection appearances. And then the ascension happened. They're in the Mount of Olives and he's there with his disciples. And, and, and Jesus uh, shares some important truths with them. And it says, after he had said this, Acts 1, he was taken up before their eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They, the disciples, were looking intently into the sky when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? Well, because Jesus just elevated up out of sight. That's why we're looking in the sky. This same Jesus will come back in the same way you've seen him taken up to heaven. There's there's the promise reiterated, and Jesus wants to encourage the hearts of the the troubled hearts of the disciples by saying, "Hey, guess what? I'm leaving, but I'm coming again. I'm coming back someday." As we interpret scripture, and there's a lot of different interpretations in the end times and eschatology, but we believe it's a twofold return. The first time Jesus returns is He comes for His saints. That's called the rapture of the church. It's described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The second time He comes, He comes with His saints. His feet touch on the very Mount of Olives and that mountain splits in two. You can read about it. I think it's in Zechariah. He returns to the very place where He ascended. Jesus says, I'm coming again. First Thessalonians four, as the apostle Paul writes to to believers who were discouraged that their loved ones had died and they missed the return of Christ, and he says, "No, no. Let me let me let me tell you what's going to happen." And he lays out this order for us, according to the Lord's word. We tell you that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep or have died. Here's the order. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven to return. And then the next thing is the resurrection of the dead. Believers, the dead saints. He's going to return with a loud command, the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Verse 17, after that, we who are still alive will be what caught up, uh, raptured, And then there's going to be a reunion, a meeting in the air, and then Paul says, so will we ever be with the Lord? And comfort one another with these words. And so Jesus' third word of uh, comfort and, and resource for troubled hearts is the fact that he's coming again. And when you read Scripture, you discover there's eight times as many verses about his second coming as there are about his first coming, Jesus is coming again. And that gives us hope. And that gives us comfort. And that should give us focus. As Paul writes to the uh, Corinthian believers in Second Corinthians chapter 4, he says, So we fix our eyes what not on what is seen, but what is unseen. What is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And so the, the admonition is to uh, be laser-focused not on the things of this world but on our future home in heaven that Christ has promised to us and that he's coming again soon. Well, there's a fourth resource and then we're done. And it's not found in John chapter 14, but I think it's so um, important to all of this that I wanted to, to add it. So. Um, the resources for life in a fallen world is a person, is Jesus. It's a place to look forward to the the promise of heaven. It's the promise of the return of Christ. But uh, here's here's what we must not neglect for for living in troubled times in a troubled world, and it's it's prayer. It's prayer, the resource of prayer. First Peter five seven. Casting all your care, all your worries. All your anxiety on Him, because He cares for you. The promise of Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, written from a prison cell in Rome to the church at Philippi, Paul writes these words, Do not be anxious about anything. It's an imperative. It's saying, stop your worry. Stop your anxiety. then he gives another imperative. Here's what he tells us to do. But in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds, your emotions and your thoughts in Christ Jesus. That, my friends, is a promise. It's a conditional promise. Some promises in the Bible are unconditional. This is a conditional one. You want to experience the peace of God in your life? You want to experience the peace in the the midst of the storm, in the midst of trouble? Here's what you need to do. Don't worry about anything, but pray about everything. And the promise that God gives us is that His peace will guard our hearts and emotions in Christ Jesus. Isaiah 26, 3 and 4, the prophet Isaiah writes, You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord, the Lord Himself, is the rock eternal. And so, the fourth resource which is often neglected and often our last resort when trouble comes, and it really should be our first response, is that God calls us and asks us to pray. We live in a troubled world. It's part and parcel of human life. But God has not left us without some promises and some resources that will help us in our troubled world. And he promises us the person and character of Jesus himself. He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. He's promised to provide for all of our needs. He reminds us that uh, this world's not our home. That earth is our temporary home. Heaven is our permanent home. And he tells us, I'm coming again so that we will be together for all of eternity in a wonderful place called heaven. And then he tells us, "Don't forget to pray. Take all that anxiety, all those things that are waking you up at night, and all those—I uh, I call it, it future tripping—and what you know, if this happens, then this can happen, and this can happen, and this can happen, and all of a sudden we're consumed with worry and stress and anxiety." The scripture tells us, "Stop, pause, refocus, pray." Keep your mind and heart fixed on God and his peace will bring great comfort. Let's do that this morning as we we pray. Here's what I'll encourage you to do this morning is hopefully God's been speaking to you and now's your opportunity to speak to God. And uh, we're just going to take a moment or two and and, um, pause for some time of silent prayer. And uh, let's put Philippians 4, 6, and 7 into practice. And just uh, whatever's um, on your heart this morning, whatever's on your, I, I call it your worry list, would you just pause a moment and pray and give that to God and allow His peace in His personhood, and His promise to come fill your heart and bring you the, the peace of God, knowing that our sovereign God is in control of our world. He's in control of our life. Let's pray for just a moment. Lord, we're, I admit this morning that um, we live in a troubled world. Lord, as we listen to the news, as we listen to what's going on in our world, in our culture, in our individual lives, Lord, it is so easy to get our focus on our circumstances and to allow worry and anxiety to consume us. Lord, may the words of Jesus spoken 2,000 years ago to some troubled hearts in an upper room in Jerusalem comfort our hearts today. Lord, that we have a, a faith and a belief in, in the person of Jesus that gives us hope. And we have a faith and a belief that this world is not all there is, but we're simply passing through and we have a, a permanent home in a wonderful place called heaven. And Lord, may that um, affect our uh, how we live our lives and the priority of our lives. Lord, thank you for the resource of prayer. You don't want us to carry our anxiety and our worries, and but you want us to uh, to give it all to you. And so, Lord, I pray that when we uh, have those nights where we, we wake up in the middle of the night and we begin to think about and worry about the future, Lord, may Philippians 4, 6, and 7 come to our minds. And Lord, may we uh, use the prescription from the great physician, the antidote of prayer, and uh, give it all to you. And Lord, we uh, thank you for um, that privilege. Lord, may our hearts be comforted today. May we leave here knowing that our lives and our future are in your providential hands. We'll thank you. We'll praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.